0: So how does someone become a poet? How does someone become interested in reading or writing poetry when there are so many, many other things in the world that you might call distractions, but really are just other interests uh, that you could possibly take up your time with, devote your time to? How does this happen? I think that's one of the most important questions that we can ask or that I can ask here is how this happens because uh, if we look at the if you want to call them origin stories of poets or writers or artists and if we can see how they became poets or painters or musicians how they came to focus on one thing to the exclusion of all others how they, uh, nowadays, you might ask how they put their phone down or stopped watching too much Netflix uh, and did something else with their time. Um, I think it would be helpful for those people who think that creating art or writing poetry or just telling stories is some sort of magical thing that happens to other people. It's helpful to see how others have done it and how they tell their story of how they did it how they started to do it how they tell that story in their own words and uh, this is one of them i just read this this week and it is from a poet who uh, was born uh, in 1930 and wrote this in 1992. so uh, this poet was already 62 years old and it's only a few years before his own death uh, this poet, as far as I know, did not do many interviews in print or uh, on television and, um, and didn't leave much of a public memoir about himself after a while. So that what we have here is uh, part of a letter that he wrote to someone in 1992, and so it's not a public statement. And it's just uh, a remarkable piece of writing because it is so uh, rare to find as far as I know I've only just begun to get into this person's writing that isn't poetry Um, this is just a wonderful recounting of how this happened to him he says uh, and this poet was born in England uh, he says roughly <coughs> Excuse me. Roughly, I suppose it is based on an attitude to the natural world, including the natural world, the psychobiology of human beings, that I came to very early when I was a child. I had an older brother who, by the time I came along, had a highly evolved world, a large tract of country in West Yorkshire, which was exclusively his hunting territory. And he had a precocious, imaginative view of it, fed by adventure magazines and books. He was a great reader of such things. He was, is, a very brilliantly dramatic person. He was the one-man theater in our family, but obsessed by the world of the primeval hunters. He also had a great turn of phrase. He had one phrase in particular that became my mantra. Until I was well into my 20s, I could freeze myself to ice just repeating it once. I picked it up when I was four, and when I began to write in my teens, or maybe when I was 11, when I first went to grammar school, I think I was trying to get at the magical world behind that phrase, find other routes into it. When I finally did get there in my 20s, with my first successful poems, the phrase began to lose its drug power over me, though it still works slightly. It still seems to me a miraculously beautiful structure of vowels and consonants. So that phrase at an early age, four or five, connected my life in my brother's Paleolithic paradise to a verbal expression. And... Just for those who are wondering, because I was when I was reading this, there is a note at the end of what that phrase was. Uh, the phrase that became, the phrase of his brothers that became this poet's mantra was, The Blesbach are changing ground. The Blesbach, B-L-E-S-B-O-K, are changing ground. That's another example. You might expect some, something more impressive than that but uh, you don't know what is going to hit you when you are three or four, or four or five. I can remember um, the first language that really uh, sounded strange or interesting to me. It's actually the, uh, the titles, I think, in um, uh, the books of uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Maybe not The Wizard of Oz, but the sequels. And I think one of the titles... Of the chapters was the, the the bount of Bunnybury, the Bunnybury's bount or mount or something like that, and I can remember also looking into my dad's book. Uh, he had a whole shelf of books on World War II, and one of them was just uh, John Toland's biography of Hitler, and I didn't know who Adolf Hitler was. Um, all I knew is that the the name sounded strange to me, and the very first. Uh, uh, plate. The very first picture in the book, in the sec- section of pictures, was a picture of Adolf Hitler as a baby, and uh, the the caption just said "Baby Adolf," and just th- that. To me, that phrase, because Adolf sounded like a strange name to me, that phrase itself sounded like baby talk. It sounded like nonsense, "Baby Adolf," and I never forget uh, laughing. Uh, at six or seven or so, uh, reading that phrase. Uh, So it can come from anywhere. In this case, this poet's uh, attachment to the natural world came not just from his brother, but from his brother who was, I believe, 10 years older than him, but also from his brother's uh, introduction, introducing him to uh, the strangeness and the beauty of language. So to continue. So my early life First consciousness to age nine revolved around my brother's world and the animals that we searched for in it. I had a peculiar obsessive relationship to wild creatures, simply their near presence. Not unique to me, both my son and daughter had the same, I noticed. It's a physical reaction, like a kind of ecstasy. We lived in a mill town where everybody, all our family, was absorbed in the life of the mills. Our father built portable wooden buildings. Neither of our parents and nobody else had any interest whatsoever in wildlife or the wild countryside. In those first, say, six years of consciousness, in which I shared in my brother's Eden, we never met one other soul walking out there, except the farmers, who had adopted my brother anyway. So you can see it was not only real, but, as far as our ordinary home and school life was concerned, it was secret and internalized. Naturally, I extended that feeling of private possession to the entire natural world and all the creatures in it. Nobody else seemed to have the faintest interest in it. And I should mention that stretch of country which climbed to empty moorland was within an hour of several million people. It was the geographical middle of the northern industrial belt between the cities of Hull and Liverpool. When I was nine, the whole thing by a fluke was intensified. We moved to South Yorkshire, where my parents bought a newsagents and tobacconists shop in a mining town right in the thick of the coal and steel belt. So from that moment I had all the comics and boys' magazines published at that time. Until I was about 13, I read every one before they were sold in the shop. Simultaneously, the war started and my brother went off into the RAF, and we hardly saw him again until 1945, six years later. But before he went, he located right next to the town we lived in And divided from it by a poisonous river, a completely wild stretch of farms. These became his new kingdom, which I entered with him. When he went off, they became mine. So, for the next five years, I had to keep our Paleolithic Eden going on my own. And I did that. The farmers adopted me. But again, and now, this territory was even more tightly surrounded, by industrial towns, and within an hour about eight million people. Not once in all my years roaming that territory did I see one other soul except the farmers. Unimaginable nowadays, but that's how it was. I had the whole thing to myself. When I was eleven, I got to grammar school and discovered that what I wrote amused my classmates and my English teacher. That focused my interest, I suppose. But with my brother gone, I came under the influence of my sister. She was ahead of me at school and an academic star. She also had a very forceful personality. Also, as it happened, she had a sophisticated taste in poetry. Our mother, who had, who having seen our very talented brother slip through her fingers, wasn't going to let the same thing happen to us, and so she bought a whole library of collected poets, I think in response to the news that the English teacher was interested in me. It was an old library, ancient editions. I can't remember reading it at the time, but it was a sign of her intent, of her desire. I can't remember that I had any interest in poetry as such until I was about 14. What I did like was the Bible. A good deal of the Bible was like my brother's magic phrase. I often read bits of it, Job, Song of Songs, Ezekiel, Isaiah, simply for more of that, whatever it was. The real jolt was my discovery of folklore. Nowadays it's unthinkable that any child with an attentive mother who told incessant stories to us when we were younger she made them up, mostly. I remember only one actual children's book with pictures. Should remain unaware of folklore until 13 years old. I came across a small group of folktales in a children's encyclopedia that I was borrowing out of our parents' shop. That was my first literary shock. I could not believe such treasures could exist. Again, I became totally preoccupied, a mania, in collecting them. There were not many to be found, none in shops, and only a few collections in the town library. That mania has continued ever since, I might say, in cyclic waves of renewed realization that these things are the great treasures of the world. As I see it now, the result of that mania was that by that time I was fifteen or sixteen, I was familiar with the mythic and metaphysical systems of all the old civilizations and was deep into their common life through their folklore. I didn't think of it in that way. To me, it was the imaginative world that fitted into... Sorry. To me, it was the imaginative world that fitted into the natural world. In one of the pieces I'm enclosing, I call it the metaphysics of the Paleolithic world. Vague and inclusive phrase, but it suggests how I felt that the animal kingdom, the undisrupted paradise of the natural world, and the worlds of mythology and folklore all hung together in a wonderful single thing. Also, never did I find anybody who had the slightest interest in folklore and mythology. So it was, in a way, my own and unspoiled. When I was about fourteen, I read Kipling's poems. I think because our English teacher had read us Mowgli, the story of the boy among the animals in class, I fell completely under the spell of his rhythms. The stories, etc., that I wrote to amuse a gang of classmates from that point went into those pounding rhythms and rhymes. Here is one of my lines from those days, and it says, And the curling lips of the five gouged rips and the bark of the pine were the the mark of the bear. One more time. And the curling lips of the five gouged rips and the bark of the pine were the marks of the bear. My pieces were all set in the American Northwest, far west, the Brazilian jungle or Africa. I was looking one day in the school library for more poems in those same long rhythms. When I came across the last part of The Wanderings of Hoshin by Yeats, it so happened my particular craze in folklore and mythology was Irish, very rich, as you know. So here was an Irish myth and my special verse meter all in one. I then read the whole poem for the legend. Then I searched Yeats for more, not tramping rhythms, but folklore made into poems. And frequent listeners here can understand why I am attached to this origin story in particular. It's not just the poetry, but it's the myth and the folklore. So I was swallowed alive by Yeats. From that point, my animal kingdom, the natural world, the world of folk tales and myth and poetry, became a single thing, and Yeats was my model for how the whole thing could be given poetic expression. It all happened pretty quickly. I simply tried to learn the whole of Yeats, and eventually did learn the complete poems. That Wanderings of O'Sheen gave me some of the most brilliant dreams I've ever had. My own writing jumped a whole notch in sophistication, all this time under the constant close influence of my sister, who had become interested in my writing, but was also constantly trying to get me to work at school. She was a terrific worker. Soon, after the eighths trauma, my second big literary shock, no my third, Kipling's rhythms were my second, I was writing the odd line that I still would quite like to get into a poem, and one of them was, "'The otter comes here in the winter, but even the shells are empty.' you see how my rhythms have improved. Although, in fact, that is a perfect classic hexameter. Our Latin master used to pace us up and down the classroom, reciting Virgil in a strong Edinburgh accent. had a great permanent effect on my ear. However, does that give you a rough idea of the topography of my system? The final touch, the next big literary shock, was a book of my sister's, and this was Carl Jung's Psychological Types. Through Jung, I made a connection between my own ramshackle system and intellectual systems, psychological and some philosophical systems. But only as other deities' statues on the temple. The whole insides remained wholly intact, went on amusing itself, and kept the animals in the natural world the occult world, and the biological world, at the center. In Among, I had become infatuated by Shakespeare and the music of Beethoven. For many years, these two immunized me, in a way, from any other literary or musical experiences. Blake was admitted, John Keats, T.S. Eliot, Wordsworth up to a point, Dante, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Dylan Thomas— but others, W. H. Auden, for instance, were kept waiting in customs. All other music except Mozart, Bach, Handel, and Haydn were excluded, until I discovered the melodies of the old ballads, which I did at university in 1952. An Irish friend introduced me. In those days, those things too were rarely heard and unobtainable on records. So. When I got to university I was incapable of responding to the demands of the English course. You can see why, maybe, I was preoccupied. It was not until after university, when I discovered modern U.S. poetry, that I came out of my magic tower. You'll see how infatuated I was with Shakespeare and Beethoven. At home we had no gramophone, only a radio. My girlfriend's parents, quite well off, had a magnificent gramophone, and her mother had a taste for classical music. So I bought her, the mother, one by one the symphonies and the concertos and a few other things, so that I could hear them when I visited my girlfriend. My mind boggles when I remember that. At their house, too, I had the next big literary shock since discovering Yeats, This mother of my girlfriend owned a Shakespeare with the apocryphal plays included. I I already knew all the plays pretty well, and the poems. I read them constantly. But in her book, I found The Two Noble Kinsmen, which is a a play that is, I think, now attributed to Shakespeare and one other writer, whose name, of course, escapes me. The passages of verse in Act 1 of that play had an effect on me very like the effects of The Wanderings of Oshin formerly. Very brilliant and special dreams came out of it somehow. That puzzles me slightly now, how I could have reacted so strongly to such a slight novelty in the verse. Anyway, I did. I was 18 then. That's a passing autobiographical detail to help you give some reality to the rest of the tale. And then one more page later on, this is a very long letter, but one more page from it here. He says, My whole writing career sometimes presents itself to me as a search for not one style in particular, but the, excuse me, but the style for this crisis or that. In my first book, I simply wrote, trying to write poems for the way I read them. And my ideal way of reading a poem was to leave myself out at the end of its, to leave myself out at the end of it, strengthless and shattered, totally wrung out, utterly expended. As I say, that was an unattainable ideal, towards which I strained. But it determined the style of such things as uh, poems called Wind and Jaguar. And it meant that occasionally I could enjoy the beautiful experience of breaking through a sound barrier and floating at a speed beyond sound, effortless. And that happened in the little poem called Thought Fox. Publishing that book, I encountered the critical world. This is a poet who became quite famous uh, very young and almost immediately. Uh, The critical world, the alien minds of all the subgroups of our multicultural civilization, none of which, no subgroup of which, shared my understandings. At least, that's how I felt. Publishing a first book of poems is one of the most traumatic experiences that ever happens to the people who do such a thing. I was aware, as I went on writing, that above all, I wanted to rid my language of the penumbra of abstractions that, to my way of thinking, cluttered the writing of all other poetry being written by post-W.H. Auden poets. These abstractions were not to my taste, in that they seemed to me in those days second-hand, rancid, unexamined, inauthentic in the experience to which they laid claim. And then written in the margins, all young writers are fanatics of intolerance. So I squirmed and weaseled away towards a language that would be wholly my own. Not my own by being exotic or eccentric in some way, characteristic of me, but my own and that it would be an ABC of the simplest terms that I could feel rooted into my own life, my own feelings about quite definite things. So this conscious search for a solid, irrefutably defined basic and therefore limited kit of words drew me inevitably towards the solid irrefutably defined basic kit of my experiences it drew me towards animals basically my childhood and adolescent pantheon of wild creatures which were saturated by first-hand intense feeling that went back to my infancy those particular subjects in a sense were the models on which I fashioned my workable language. And that last sentence brings it full circle, doesn't it? Uh, It goes straight back to his childhood. Um, And for those of you out there, and no doubt there are many, who don't care for the natural world, who don't care for language, or who don't care for animals or mythology or folklore, uh, the point really is that Um, We all have some version of that, uh, and it's hard to say what that is. But we all have that story to tell just about something else. And I wonder, uh, I keep forgetting to do this here, but anyone who can think of another poetic origin story, artistic origin story, that is about something else entirely, that comes from something else entirely, that spirals out spontaneously from something else other than the things that I obsess about here, which are the natural world, folklore, and mythology, and things like that. Send it along in the email that's always in the post description. The point isn't that this is the only way to do it. The point is that uh, we all have our own little stories to tell. And uh, just as a last thing to read here, this is from another letter written in 1979. And this, uh, this poet mentions um, not having a, a great time at college. Uh, he's had his own experience and ideas of poetry that are uh, not intellectual or academic, but they are tied to his experience of folklore, mythology, the natural world, animal life, etc. So that when you come to college to uh, and you're told that this is the way you study this stuff, uh, it sounds ridiculous. And this is um, this is an account of a dream that he had when he was 23 years old uh, that, that told him uh, that the academic life would not be the one for him. And this is what it says. This is a letter from 1979. The Fox dream story really goes as follows. In 1953, my second year at university, I was going through some kind of crisis. The problems attached themselves to the writing of the weekly essay. It became impossible for me to write a sentence, except in lucky moments. It varied with the author in question. I remember being able to write fluently about William Blake. The difficulties became chronic toward the end of my second year. One night I sat up late writing and rewriting three or four lines I had managed to compose. The opening of an essay about Samuel Johnson, a personality I greatly liked. I left the page on my table and went to bed. Then I dreamed I was still sitting at my essay in my usual agonizing frame of mind trying to get one word to follow another. The door opened and a creature came in with a fox's head and a long, skinny fox's body, but standing erect and with human hands. He had escaped from a fire. The smell of burning hair was strong and his skin was charred and in places it was cracking, bleeding freshly through the splits. He came across and set his hand on the page that I had been working on, and the fox said, Stop this. You are destroying us. And he lifted his hand away, and the blood print stayed on the page. The hands in particular were terribly burned. And I don't know of a better... uh, of a better illustration of, uh, of a dream telling you, stop what you're doing, do something else. That's incredible. Stop this. You are destroying us. And um, if I could reveal my own bias for a moment, it probably wouldn't be horrible for a lot of the uh, poets-slash-critics-slash-theorists out there to have the same dream. But I guess uh, we will be living through the current uh, moment of poetry for a while longer. Um, If you haven't guessed it, uh, the poet that I've been reading from is Ted Hughes. This is uh, his origin story. And of course because of the baggage that comes with Ted Hughes, especially in America it seems like, um, he seems to have less baggage lately in Britain. Uh, I didn't want to mention his name at first. I wanted to see if it was possible to let this story sit on its own uh, without whatever it is that people think Ted Hughes did or did not do. Um, And that brings to mind uh, an interesting thing. Uh, At at one point uh, that's worth mentioning here, uh, in the mid-'80s, or I guess it's in the late-'70s, uh, after a movie of Sylvia Plath's novel The Bell Jar was was produced, uh there's a character in the in the movie who uh who's a lesbian, I believe. And um and the person that that is supposedly based on, the real life person, uh sued the movie makers, sued the publishers, and also at the same time sued Ted Hughes for uh uh emotional damage because people would obviously know that that is who this person is supposed to be in the movie. And it was interesting to see in the footnote that when they were selecting jurors for this trial, uh, the the question is obviously asked at, at trial, do you know anything about this case? Do you know anything about these people? And sometimes if it's a notorious case, you know, you have to move the trial somewhere where the minds haven't been tainted by the media. And this is uh, 25 years or so after Sylvia Plath committed suicide, 25 years of uh, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath's family living in the aftermath of that. Uh, So much so that uh, Hughes stopped giving interviews or speaking publicly or doing a, a lot of things very often because he didn't want to be taken out of context. He just didn't want to be used Or abused in any way, Um, and that's a subject for another uh, episode entirely as well. Um, But it's interesting. He he went through all of this, and Sylvia Plath's family did, and Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath's children went through this. But when uh, when they went to select the jurors for this trial, uh, none of them none of them knew who Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Were, which is, <laughs> which was a beautiful thing to come across. Um, none of these holes that we dig for ourselves are nearly as popular as we think they are. Um, even the most renowned poets are completely unknown uh, outside of those people who are their rabid fans, and that is just the case at the moment. Um, I just wanted to share that today that origin story and again if anyone has another one from any other creative person or any person at all who suddenly found their passion in whatever it is send it along and uh, I'll make space for it here Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to